Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Emily's Book Club. For any new listeners, my name is Emily Burgess, and I am an 18-year-old high school senior based in upstate New York. When I am not doing schoolwork or dancing ballet, I love to read books, so this podcast is a wonderful excuse for me to talk about something I love with people I love. New episodes are released every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and each features at least one special guest to talk about a novel or anthology. Today, I am so beyond thrilled to welcome Emily Layden onto the pod to discuss her novel, All Girls. I first met Emily more than three years ago when she was my ninth grade English teacher. Ms. Layden was the first teacher that made me feel seen equally as a person and a student. I came to spend all of my free time in her classroom with my friends throughout the day, and the conversations I had there will forever be some of my favorites that I've ever had in my life. So, imagine the mixture of shock, pride, and selfish sadness I felt when Emily emailed me in the summer of 2019 saying that a novel she had written was going to be published and that I wouldn't be seeing her around the halls each day anymore. The novel in question, All Girls, came out this past winter, and it is as intelligent, thought-provoking, and honest as its author. All Girls follows a year in the eyes of nine female boarding school students as their school, Atwater, mitigates a growing sexual assault scandal. The book tackles such important themes, including mental health, betrayal, accountability, and so many other things that have caused all girls to take up so much space in my heart. While I readily acknowledge that the joy of surprise is essential to the reading experience, I cannot guarantee that there will not be spoilers from this point of the episode on. If you are so inclined, feel free to pause here, read the book, and cycle back later. With all of that being said, we are more than ready to welcome today's guest, Emily Layden. Miss Layden, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing pretty well. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I feel so lucky. I feel like I've reached a book club pot of gold. <laughs> um, and I just want to clarify for listeners that I still call Emily Miss Layden for a few reasons. Chiefly, we have the same name. And whenever I call her Emily, it kind of feels like I'm talking to myself. Secondly, old habits die hard. <laughs> so maybe one day I'll call you Emily, but that day is not the day. <laughs> so, well, you also didn't have the experience I had, which was I, I went to, when I was in elementary school, there were six Emily's in my class. <laughs> like, so it's not weird at all for me. <laughs> that yeah, <laughs> I've been able to avoid that pretty well. There was an Emily in our grade for a little and then she left. So it's all mine. There wasn't room for the two of us. Yeah, it is. I was just, I was just running through my head. I was trying to be like, is there, is there another Emily? But yeah. Well, there's another Emily. There are other Emilys in the school, but not in the group. That would be so bad if I forgot. <laughs> I was, oh no, I'm the only one. Okay. But anyway, um, before we get into the wonder that is all girls, I wanted to ask a few questions about being a novelist in general, because this is a unique opportunity for Emily's book club. I know that you were a full-time teacher while you were writing All Girls. What did a day in your life look like then? So I kind of approached um, my writing the way I approach 
my running and I would say like most things in my life, which is I'm, I just work better when I work in a more, um, I don't want to use, it's hard, it's hard to use the word discipline because it sounds like I'm being sanctimonious about it, but like in a more just sort of, um, methodical, uh, like small chunk way. So like I have to do something, I work much better when I do something every day than if I do something in a huge chunk on one day. So like in college, I was never someone who could pull an all-nighter and write a paper the night before it was due. I always had to do a little bit of it every day the week before it was due. Um, and that continues to be how I approach most things and how I wrote this novel, which was I woke up every morning at 5 a.m. and wrote for an hour before I got ready to go to school at Academy. Um, and that was the only way it was going to happen for me. There was no way I was going to write this book if I did it only on the weekends or only on breaks. Um, it just needed to happen like one page at a time. So now that you're a full-time writer, how does your schedule differ? Besides, obviously, you have more time to get to dedicate to these projects. And I'm learning that just because you have more time, it doesn't mean that you're more productive. <laughs> um, I remain someone who needs to just like do do it in in um, in as like a daily ritual. Um, so yes, when I when I was writing all girls, I wrote for one hour a day and that usually got me about a page. So about 350 to 400 words. Um, now I shoot for a thousand words a day, um, which is on a good day, that's two hours of writing ish. Um, and I still try to work in the mornings because that's the best time for me sort of before the onslaught of the day like when your brain is still in that sort of sleepy calm space um and then I then the rest of my day I, I so I sort of have a morning session and an afternoon session and the afternoon session depends on it depends on what is required of me so I have to do publicity for all girls I have to do development work for the novel and I have to do research for my second novel. So that afternoon session of work kind of gets filled in with whatever is needed on, on the day. Very cool. So you've probably told this story in every interview, but what was the timeline between writing all girls and pub day? How did that even happen? Yeah, so I guess it depends how, and you can interrupt me or, or um, it depends how, macro or micro you want me to get um there there are a lot of um sort of a lot of gatekeepers in publishing so there are a lot of steps you have to go through um a lot of uh hurdles or rungs on a ladder or whatever i'm mixing my metaphors now but um the first step is you have to get an agent um and I got my agent through something called the querying process, which is really just like, like cold emailing agents, um, your book pitch and sample pages. Um, so step one is you need an agent. I lucked out, I had multiple offers from agents and ended up with like a woman who has my whole heart. Um, she just is the perfect fit for me. 
Um, and then your you work with your agent on a round of revisions on the manuscript. Um, so Lisa, Lisa's my agent, Lisa and I worked together for um, probably about six weeks on revising the manuscript, pretty light revision. And then the agent takes it out to editors at publishing houses. Um, so Lisa took, pulled up, made a list of editors that she thought were a good fit for the book based on their, their own list, their preferences, her relationships with them, how she thought I might get along with those editors. Um, and then a whole lot of things can happen. For me, um, my editor, Sarah Canton, read the manuscript overnight and came in with an offer the next morning. Um, so we sold the book, Lisa sold the book in less than 24 hours. Um, and that was the last day of school, right? It was the last day of school, yeah. <laughs> it was a wild day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and this is a backtracking question and also completely random, but when you're cold emailing, What's the subject line? Is it like woman seeking agent? <laughs> <laughs> it's li it's literally query. So like the thing that you're doing and they all know that it's like everyone in the industry uses that. And then it depends. Like sometimes they'll want the title. Sometimes they want your name in, in the subject line. The only thing that that's nice about the querying process, it's a very difficult process. But the thing about it is that um, most agencies and agents make very clear on their websites or on their social media or whatever exactly how they want the information. Yeah. Um, and you should, I don't know, any aspiring novelist listening to this, like follow the rules. Like uh, agents want the information delivered a certain way and it doesn't behoove you to, to do it a different way. Right. Right. Okay. So we sold the book and then you have, you actually edit the novel with your editor. Um, and that can take a long time. It, it for me, it was maybe, um, I wanna say like three to four months. Um, so the initial, it's sort of like, is a nesting doll strategy of edits. So you get a big edit memo from your editor um, that's literally like a long letter. And then you work through, you redo the manuscript and then you send it back to your editor and then you get more granular with each round of edits. Um, we probably did three or four, um, but by the time you're on that fourth one, it's really just like, it's like, changing a, the structure of a couple of sentences. It's one scene needed a rewrite. We had to change a character's name, very small things like that. Um, and then the book is sort of out of your hands and it goes through the whole, and it enters kind of the marketing side of things, which involve packaging the book, right? So designing the cover and the, the, the layout of the interior, and then what your actual marketing publicity and publicity plan is going to be. Um, and for that, I'm kind of just like along for the ride. <laughs> um, that's other, other experts making those choices and guiding me on that. Um, until then, it's out in the world. That's such an insane pathway. It's so cool. 
I, I can't believe that I was once sitting in your classroom talking about. <laughs> I mean, but I couldn't have written it without you guys, you know? I mean, there is a building named after me, so. <laughs> Contribution. <laughs> okay, so now let's actually get into All Girls. It was rather difficult for me to come up with these questions because, not to sound stalkerish, I've seen so many of your interviews about the novel and I still wanted to be original. We'll see how this goes. I appreciate that. I appreciate <laughs> that. One of the things about this process is you do end up answering the same question yeah. a lot of times. So it's nice to get new ones because then you sound fresh and not like a robot. <laughs> there will definitely be some repeats, but there are some new ones. Okay. I wanted to start before the story really even begins at the poem that is found within the first few pages. For those unfamiliar with all girls who I'm sure are listening to this podcast en route to their local bookstore to get their copy, the poem by Emily Dickinson reads, I stepped from plank to plank a slow and cautious way, the stars about my head I felt about my feet the sea. I knew not but the next would be my final inch, this gave me that precarious gait some call experience. Ms. Layden, I know that you are a huge fan of Emily Dickinson, but what, what went into your selection of this poem to start off all girls? I love that you've asked me this because I don't get asked about it very often. And I love this poem and I love Emily Dickinson and I love the chance to talk about it. Um, so the thing about Emily Dickinson, right, is that so much there's so much myth around her and so much of our understanding of her writing is caught up in the myth of her so she's this was this reclusive um intro, ex paralyzingly introverted woman who lived most of her days in her childhood bedroom in her father's house right and that um neurotic timidness is something that we project onto her poems, which are also often small and strange and have um, odd rhythms and that weird punctuation and her strange capitalization, right? So it all gets bundled into like, she's the mad woman in the attic who wrote weird and impenetrable poems. And I think that the thing about, um, her poetry is just like Emily herself, is that actually she's incredibly bold and brave and subversive. And if we just give her poems another read or spend a little bit more time sitting with them, that those characteristics unfold themselves to us. So if we take that poem that grounds the book, right? Um, I step from plank to plank a slow and cautious way. Um, there's this image of someone making her way out across a hazard, right? And those words, slow and cautious, it sets up this, like, again, this timidness, right? And it's really easy to read the whole poem that way, that it's just like this, this nervous, the word precarious sounds oddly also like it has like the same inflection of like nervous or cautious, right? So it's easy to see it as this woman tiptoeing through something. But if we just sit with it for a second and think about it differently, right? 
it's also an image of someone making her way across a hazard. And we can't make our way across hazards if we're not brave, if we're not willing to take risks. And we don't gain experience, the final turn of the poem, if we don't, if we aren't brave and if we don't take risks. And that um, misreading of something as nervous and timid when actually it's bold and um, uh, brave and um, surprising is something that I think we also, we as in a society also, is a way we as a society also interpret teenage girls. We do not see them as, as powerful as they are. Yeah, I think that sense of like othering that you explain with Emily Dickinson is so prevalent like yes with teenage girls and also with women in the media like when you were describing Emily Dickinson the first person I thought of was Britney Spears which I know people are like why are you always talking about Britney Spears but, but, I love um, it I love it it's so true because that's what people do they write someone off as crazy and then um that's their excuse for not understanding them or right, and not and not bothering to engage with them, right? Like that, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so you've previously said that you elected to tell the story of the Atwater Girls from multiple points of view because you didn't want the weight of the scandal to be tethered to one character. In my opinion, this resulted in a masterful work that moves quickly. And while I read, I felt like I had just begun a new school and was meeting all of these characters. Still, the book has come under scrutiny for your decision. Some say that the story is hard to follow, that they can't remember the names or keep the plot straight. If you could unabashedly rebut these claims, what would you say? <laughs> um, I think it's an interesting criticism, which is, I don't necessarily think it's unfair. Um, I do think there are a lot of names in the book. Um, I do think that it's a non-traditional way of telling a story. Um, I wonder about the criticism um, when we think about the popularity of something, for example, like Game of Thrones, right? Which has, nine families that anchor the story and each family has its own cast of characters that you are expected to keep track of, right? And people do. And people do, and people do. Um, and I wonder about the difference between um, a an intimate female driven teenage teenage girl driven set of characters and a um more male oriented narrative and how we might be more likely to 
mistake or or sort of homogenize teenage girls in a way we might not a more adult and more male cast of characters yeah I almost feel like the criticism proves your point <laughs> the, whole, the whole book is about how we don't give teenage girls their own voice and people are complaining because they get them confused and find them too similar so it's kind of funny <laughs> how there's a moment there's a moment in the book when um uh Chloe's Chloe talks about her dad wondering if there's a quote official Chloe's gang uniform because he thinks all the girls dress the same yeah. and that is like a like it's meant to that line is meant to exist as it does right it's just like a dad being a dad and like thinking that like all the girls are dressing the same and he doesn't really understand how they how they look and whatever yeah. but there's also that element of adults flattening right girls, right yeah and with the you know like the teenage girls are so dramatic and it's like but are you listening to what they actually have to say yes yes okay well speaking of complaining teenage girls <laughs> you and I have talked at length about our love for Taylor Swift for all of the reasons one of the biggest reasons we share though is her insistence upon the validity of teenage girl emotions when she was 16 and released her first album full of raw teen angst Review said that her songwriting was good for a 16-year-old girl. Her return to claim her masters and re-record all of her songs is a way of saying, yeah, my emotions were valid and I was a great songwriter when I was 16, but they're just as valid and the lyrics are just as impressive now when I'm 31. On the topic of music, we also share a love for Olivia Rodrigo's work and she released her debut album, Sour, today. On her album, which is about a teenage relationship turned sour, Olivia said, quote, something I'm really proud of is that this record talks about emotions that are hard to talk about or aren't really socially acceptable, especially for girls. Anger, jealousy, spite, sadness, they're frowned upon as moaning and complaining or whatever, but I think they're such valid emotions, end quote. The sentiment is echoed so clearly in all girls. Your dedication reads, Young women deserve to have their experiences seen more fully. This book is dedicated to them. Why do you think that we, as a society, write off the experiences of young women? And can you think of the first time that you picked up on this tendency? This is a great, complex, layered question we talk about for hours. <laughs> um, I think the why is like an, a, a question that people spend, um, you know, entire bodies of doctoral work, entire like years in graduate study, like trying to unpack, right? Like it, it doesn't, it didn't start in, in 2010, it didn't start in 2006, it didn't start in 1995, right? Like this is a long, long standing, tradition um and and it has roots in all sorts of sexism and misogyny that just like right goes back centuries um i wonder i guess why this particular you know why we do keep um 
there are so many ways, right, that obviously like women have come so far, feminism has done so much work and that particularly in the past half century, right? Um, but I, I do, you just, you mentioned women who are prolific right now and yet whose work is still frequently called into question. Um, I, I don't, it just, sometimes this sort of work as in like the work of validating, of legitimizing, of, of, of asserting um, an experience takes, takes time and takes, and takes a lot of voices. Um, I'm not answering your question, but it's like, it's sort of, it's sort of unanswerable, right? Like the why is just like so much bigger than us right now in this moment. Um, when, when did I realize? Um, that's a really interesting question and is actually maybe like part of the answer to the why. Um, I think, honestly, I didn't, I didn't really realize the extent of it or the insidiousness of it or the pervasiveness of it probably until I started teaching. I don't think I, I think, I think you, you and so many of your friends and so many of the girls I taught are so remarkable because you are already, you are thinking about this. You are thinking about your place and your voice and your power in a way that I don't think I was when I was 15 or 16. Um, I think that I came of age under even, just like Taylor Swift and I are the same age, right? Like just in, in a, just enough of a different environment where I didn't really realize that the messages I was being given about being good and as in like gold star good, right? Were tainted with sexism, right? That I, I didn't really realize that um, wanting the pats on the head, wanting to be seen as doing a good job, wanting to be, um, wanting to please. I didn't, I didn't really realize that those were not, not exactly also asked of boys. Right. Like there's that saying, um, it's like everybody says that girls mature faster than boys, but that's because the kind of behavior that's acceptable for boys is not acceptable for girls. Yes. And like, yeah, um, male brains develop slower than female brains if you want to get really scientific, but also I think that's so true. Um, right, well, it's, a, it's like a chicken or an egg thing a little yeah. bit, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know where I would think the origin of that came, but I think that, um, you know, with artists, with novelists like yourself, we're getting a little bit more aware each day of like, well, I think about, I mean, things. I think about my own experience of Taylor Swift when, when I was in high school, when her, when her first album came out, right? Um, my guy friends didn't like it. I couldn't listen to it in the car with them. My dad didn't like it. Couldn't listen to it when he was around. Right. Um, I had to listen to like, you know, you know how girls listen to music that boys like, because like, we're like, 
that's they get to decide I, I don't know right but it was like I had a pile in the car with like my guy friends and it was like we had to listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers or like Dave Matthews Band like not stuff I like but it was out of the question that we would listen to Taylor Swift yeah. and so just that my experiences were not as cool quote unquote right they were not as interesting they were not as serious art as what the boys liked um and that takes a long time and a lot of years and in Taylor Swift's case nine albums to like to undo and to assert and to validate right even on Folklore and Evermore it's so it is so powerful that that Folklore still features stories still centers a, a story about teenagers yeah because she's saying at 31 on this incredibly sophisticated album that this type of this emotional arc of a, of a trio of 17 year olds is still as important and relevant as it was at the start of her career yeah I think that's such an incredible thing like people would always be like oh like what's Taylor Swift gonna write about when she doesn't have a breakup and she's still writing about teenagers and it's still valid you know yes yeah yeah Okay, so this is a shift in topic, but <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but your novel is kind of critical of institutions, um, the corporate jargon they use, the way they can discredit students' individ individuality and voices, and other general wrongdoings. In All Girls, this is reflected in the emails from the administration to the Atwater community and different interactions between admin and students. One such interaction that stuck out to me was in Luisa's chapter where girls from the newspaper approached the head of school to protect their newspaper's publishing. And the head of school, Patricia Brody, responded with a long-winded response about a Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the San Mandalas, completely avoiding the question. I'll never forget how I felt when I read that because I think it's such a relatable thing to put yourself out there to a higher power and not feel listened to. What do you think is the crux of the issue with these with such institutions and if you were an administrator how would you actively try to be different so I think the thing about um Patricia Brody the head of school is that she believes herself to be a feminist this and this is so in my mind there's a whole like I have so much to say about Patricia Brody. And so I think she's such a rich and complex character because in my experience, the people who work at girls' schools believe in girls' schools, right? In the promise of a room of one's own, in the confidence building benefits of a single gender education. I have, I think that real women like Patricia Brody and Patricia Brody believe in the institution, the promise of the institution they champion. They think they are doing good work. And in some ways, of course they are, right? Like these school, the Atwater girls are getting a fantastic education, right? Like, um, but at some point, um, power and privilege erodes, right? It, it has the power and privilege have the capacity to corrupt. And at many of these institutions, especially the ones like Atwater, the ones that are a century or two centuries old, the ones that have 
tens of millions or, or, or half billion dollar endowments, right? There is so much money and so much power at stake that the defense of a legacy and the defense of a reputation becomes more important than the fulfillment of a mission. And that is almost too big of a problem to put on one individual's shoulders, right? So I don't necessarily think of Patricia Brody as a villain. I think of her as a product. Um, I think of her, which is not, of course, to say that individual, so individuals make institutions, individuals have the power to change institutions, they do have agency and choice. Um, but all this meandering thing here is to say that I think that sometimes um, good, well-intentioned people enter a system and are, and are changed by it. And I think that it's, it is important for these places that talk all the time about their founding principles, their origin stories, to actually remember, to actually remember that their job is to, to continue to deliver upon that founding promise, right? It is not to preserve the founding promise as a plaque somewhere. It is to continue, um, you know, it's, it's not unlike the American promise of an ever more perfect union, right? Like that is, we, are, we should be constantly striving to continue to deliver upon something. Did you consider her that way when you were writing the character that she was lost in trying to find herself? Because that's the first time that I've thought of it that way and that's very interesting. So I, I always felt a lot of compassion for her, even though that doesn't always live on the page. And even though I think it's, I totally understand why she, she says really mealy mouthed lame things, right? Like the Sam Mandala thing. That is like, that's a moment, right? And, um, but I, um, I think it's, it's noteworthy that that moment near the end of the book when, when one of the final pranks is sort of a suggestion that Brody can't respond to the scandal adequately because she, she married someone who is older than her and who was in a position of power over her. Mm -hmm. And the girls kind of have a response to that. That's like, that might've been a bridge too far, like, or that just feels messy and complicated. And we don't really know what to do with that. <laughs> and um, I think that little backstory of hers is really important, right? What do women today who came of age under a different set of rules, right? Who did date and marry their professors, who did um, date and marry their bosses. What do they do with our, with our shifting conversation around consent and power and agency? So what does it mean as a 70 year old Patricia Brody to look back on something with kind of the, the lens and language of a new generation and be told, well, he was your professor. You, you couldn't have really consented, mm -hmm. but you've been married to this person for, for 40 years. What do you do with that, right? Yeah. What do you do with that, that story? 
Um, and it's sort of kind of heartbreaking um, to have to reimagine something like that, um, something that defines you. I believe that Patricia Brody and her husband love each other. And I believe that they have a good marriage, just like the book says, and, and like the girls recognize. Yeah. So that is really, really fraught. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, um, looking back on the book, really interesting how you see the power dynamic between male and female across all of the generations involved. Like Patricia Brody and her husband, the recent alum and the faculty member, and then with Chloe too. and. Mm -hmm what transpires over Ring Dare's weekend, which leads me into the next question. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the hardest chapters to get through is Chloe's chapter, which takes place over Ring Dare's weekend. Chloe is dared to make out with a visiting boy and the situation escalates to the point of sexual assault, which she doesn't fully understand at the time. She doesn't tell any of her friends and harbors the secret close to her heart. In my opinion, the most heartbreaking part comes at the end of the chapter when she reflects on the experience. After she lies to one of her friends, saying that she opted out of the dare, she knows that, quote, it is an irrevocable answer, and so it becomes a story she will tell until college, when a new friend will ask, between shots of cheap vodka, the liquor searing across the inside of their schools, when Chloe lost her virginity, and she'll say, 16, a regular age, the safe but true answer, her friend suspects nothing. Me too, she says. At 30, she will try again. First to the man she loves, then to a therapist. But she will find out, well, she will find that she has hidden the exact contours of the story deep inside a slowly shifting narrative, like a jagged rock smoothed by the tide, and it will be easier to keep the edges blunted, end quote. You so beautifully touch on so many nuances here. The fact that society has established respectable ages for personal events, and how we as humans hide trauma equally from others as ourselves. I remember in a past conversation, you said that many people have approached you saying that they relate to this experience, which while nice to know that you write relatably is really horrifying. What aspects of society do you think facilitate these types of traumas and are we past the point of return? Well, I hope we're not past the point of return. Um, if by, if by which you mean it can't be fixed or we can't change, yeah. Um, so what's interesting about Chloe's story is that, well, one of the things that's interesting about it um, is that Chloe herself doesn't know what to call it, right? Even in the, in the moment, and later and it's really you know i i wrote that scene very deliberately without her saying no right that's that is important because in in her own um the way she can create the way she can make memories out of it right um and it's interesting because there is some part of her, and she says this in, in narration, um, that knew what she was walking towards. N not really, right? But she has this thought later that's um, 
tied to what Patricia Brody says, which is you, a girl has to know what she's getting herself into. And that's tied to the way Chloe is thinking about this moment in the corn maze. Well, I did want to make out with him. Well, I did know that we were going to be alone. Well, I did know that um, I, di I did I notice the way he was touching me, the way he was lingering near me. Um, shouldn't I have been able to anticipate all of this? And exactly as you just said, well, I'm 16, aren't I supposed to have done this by now? Yeah. And that mess of feelings that she is dealing with, this these internal and external pressures, this weird way we talk about sex as um, um, like achievement markers, like think barriers you have to have, have passed um, particularly, well, Actually, I think both men and women deal with this, but um, I think that your question and the Chloe's entire chapter um, is working to demonstrate that the forces that go into that scene in the corn maze and her processing of her trauma after are huge are big and unwieldy and there are many 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 threads and that is what makes it um that is why the problem that is part of why the problem persists that is part of why um we have trouble with with stories like this because they feel because they are not neatly packaged and that i think is one of the things we have to work on as a society is resisting the need for a neat narrative. Like, so, like sometimes, as we were just talking about with Patricia Brody and her husband, like sometimes um, most times, <laughs> like people are complex and and Chloe has her own has a lot of reasons for why she has to cope with that moment the way she does. And I just think that when we think of consent as, as black and white, that is, that is not, that is, that, that is because Chloe didn't say no, she has trouble thinking of it as an assault. Right. Yeah. And because Chloe didn't say no, Aiden gets to say, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic and, and sort of hypothetical here. Yeah. Aiden gets to say that he didn't assault her. Right. Yeah. And we need the space and the nuance and the attention and the compassion to deal with um, moments that are gray. Yeah. I mean, as I was reflecting, on the chapter to write this question, I was like, hmm, do I call this sexual assault? And I think the fact that I had to ask myself that is exactly the issue, you know? There are so many, I mean, I'm sure there are so many situations like Chloe's out there in the world um, where people don't know, you know? And I think just not knowing is the answer. And there are so, the 
so many women have come up to me and said that this chapter, they understand this chapter and they understand, they feel in their bones that moment in the corn maze. And, and that they're not necessarily like treating me as a therapist and unburdening their trauma on me. They're saying like, um, I need help giving this moment a language, mm. right? I need help describing this. Yeah. I if need to know, help. yes, I need to know why this still bothers me when I'm 30, when I'm 45, when I'm 50. Why am I still, why do I still sometimes think about that moment at the, at the party, that moment in the bar, that one time with that one guy, right? Yeah. Nothing bad really happened, right? Like that is, we tell, we tell ourselves these stories to manage and then, but we're always looking for something that can help us manage or that can make more sense. I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't relate to that chapter, but I think that you write about it so well that it brings up questions um, about people who do. And I think that we could all make more space for those kinds of conversations, even though, like you said, it can be really hard to put it into words. Well, and even if you, let me ask you this, you maybe you don't relate to that particular element of the chapter, but but perhaps, but did, that feeling of um, wanting to keep a pace with your peers sort of resonate with you. But like, I, like the way Chloe's thinking about what all of her friends have done and what they'll think of her and the fact that it's a dare. Yeah, quote, I, I, yeah I definitely think that's a very real thing. I have a friend and we like joke that we're socially behind. That's kind of exposing <laughs> myself. But yeah, I, I think that part is definitely relatable and I can see how it can escalate. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the only way I relate to that. Yeah. Um, so I'm laying the compliments on thick today, but I think that the way you discuss mental health in all girls is so masterful. The character Macy particularly struggles and one of my favorite parts of the whole book comes toward the end when another one of the characters, Bryce, reflects on Macy's problems. Once Bryce had come across a quote from Virginia Woolf. I thought how unpleasant it is to be locked out. And I thought how it is worse perhaps to be locked in." End quote. Bryce uses this to describe Macy's mental issues and how she is locked inside her own mind. I think that everyone struggles with mental health. And while my struggles aren't a fraction as serious as Macy's are, I read this passage and instantly related. What is the biggest takeaway readers should glean from Macy's story? And why did you feel it so important to include the story? It's funny because I thought that um, nobody would like Macy. When I, I thought I've been, before I published this book, I was the most worried about her chapter. I wasn't sure that it fit. She's very young. She's a freshman. Um, she is, she struggles with disordered eating, but it's not an eating disorder that we're used to seeing depicted, right? It's not bulimia. It's not obvious yeah. calorie counting anorexia. Um, she is spiraling 
ab about something initiation that all that feels very that perhaps again I'm imposing I'm saying what I thought an, an audience might think of this that feels juvenile right so I just didn't think that people would understand her um and boy was I wrong like people love her and she is probably the second most mentioned character whenever readers reach out to me or when I do events or interviews like this. Um, and I do think it's because more people than we know, know what it feels like to, to feel trapped inside your own head. Um, and the more, just like, I feel like I keep saying this, but like, just like the more teenage girls, we can assert that teenage girls' voices need to be heard. Just like the more we can make space for nuance and conversations about consent, we need to just keep having more conversations about mental health. I think that the more, every time one of these stories is told, people go, oh, me too, right? And that, is really, really powerful. And it's just really important that creators keep making these stories, that people keep publishing them, that we just insist on their belonging in a, in a public space. And that's how, that's how we have, as we grow, I guess. Yeah, I mean, reading that Virginia Woolf quote, I had never seen it before. And when I did, I was like, of course, like, that <laughs> I've never felt it so perfectly described besides right then. And had you had that like in your back pocket for a while, when did you find that? And when did you decide to include it? This is so funny because I don't know. <laughs> and, and, for a, and for a while, it really bothered me that I couldn't find the, like where I had initially found it. Mm -hmm. Like I was tearing up my bookcases <laughs> and like, it must have been the epigraph to some other book. Like I was, I was sure I had read it in like a, like a very. It was, it, I had to have gotten it from some other book, and I'm sure I did, but I have, I have no idea. But just like you, it just stayed with me. It is, it is, an, a, an excellent way, of, of describing. Macy's feelings, it is also profoundly compassionate. Um, and that is always, I think, what I'm striving for in my work with myself. Yeah, I, I was impressed, impressed with Bryce's ability to empathize with Macy's struggles there because, you know, people in every, I feel like mental health struggles are um, prolific and I try so hard to understand, but I think part of it is knowing that you'll never understand, you know? You think it's getting better though? Um, like so many, so many of your classmates, so many, like, you know, so many of your generation um, struggles with anxiety, right? Like it's, it is just everywhere. Like, everywhere. Yeah. Um, do you so do you feel like there's more um, like do you feel like it's more accepted more understood more that people are more compassionate yes and no I think that um especially with social media 
which can create more problems than it solves. Um, but there is a lot more room for conversation. Like you see people posting different resources for people that have mental struggles to use. But also I think that like things like social media and school and obviously the global pandemic and political world that we've been experiencing can just make everything feel so much worse. But um, I don't know, I think it's like a give and take. Some some things get better and some things get worse. But I think that there's more tolerance for mental issues. Like um, sometimes you'll be like, oh, I think I struggle with anxiety. And someone will say like, everyone does, which is such a, a cold response. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that like, if you focus on that, like, no, that's not the best thing to say to somebody, but also understanding that everyone has those struggles is a step in the right direction. It's so, it's so fraught, right? There was an article in the New Yorker a couple of weeks ago about the, the rise of therapy speak and how everybody now is using a language that we, that is like from the couch, right? So, um, uh, we talk about making space for something or sitting with your feelings or creating boundaries or um, th uh, that there's just, it's, there's be the language of therapy and the language of um, mental health healing has become sort of um, democratized and therefore perhaps also diluted. Right, we're all walking around talking about sitting with our feelings. I've been in therapy for a long time. I still sometimes am like, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, if you're just saying it, if you're just saying it because it's like the the thing to say, just like I have anxiety. Are, are we not? Are we diminishing it? Right. Yeah. I don't. I, the 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 line the the it's a tightrope right between between making something um, more accepted more understood and diluting and diminishing it yeah. right and then there's also the other side to that that we've talked about where it's like if I admit I I have a problem will I stop being myself which I know that we've talked about in the realm of like excellence is like yeah. I, I might cry or do this every night, but I still get results. So if I admit this, am I not going to get those results? Will I no longer be excellent? And I think that more people talking about their problems makes that less likely. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, especially for teenage girls, like seeing um, people I know, like for me, seeing you talk about therapy and your problems, even though like you are such a role model, makes makes it okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't see you less. It's just like, oh, it's okay then. <laughs> we can talk no, about things and still totally. do, yeah. Right, right, right. And it's, and I had, to, I had to have the same experience too with women I looked up to and women who are older than me. And I also had to trust that you and your friends and so many of my my former students who I adore as I moved into this space as a like quote more public person um, and wanted to talk about these things with this platform that 
um, you wouldn't meet me any differently, that it would be um, an added element to our relationship, not um, some, some sort of something that, that altered it in a negative way. Um, and I think that says a lot about your generation and also where, where we're moving as a society. Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely was scared when the book first came out. I was like, oh no, who will my school mom be now? <laughs> but, um, and that void was not filled, so don't worry. But um, I am really grateful for the book because it's like a box full of conversations <laughs> to have. Um, I think you describe, you know, the private school girl life very well. Oh. So this is my last question, and I'm not sure if I'm crossing any boundaries, but what content will the world be blessed with from Emily Layden next? <laughs> um, right, so I, <laughs> um, I am really shy about my work while it is still in its like very germinal stages. Um, yeah. So, I'm not, I'm not really talking about my second novel. Um, I can say that it is still, I remain really interested in um, these, in, in feminist themes and in um, particular in what we mean when we talk about what it is to be good um, among women. So what is a good girl is something I'm really interested in. And where can people go to be up to date on your current projects? <laughs> well, I'm terrible at social media, but <laughs> when I choose to engage, you can find me at Emily Layden or at EmilyLayden.com. All right. Well, Ms. Layden, <laughs> I just wanted to take time to thank you for putting all girls out in the world. I found it hugely relatable and I am beyond thankful for the conversations it provokes. And I have to share my sincerest gratitude for taking time out of your busy schedule for Emily's book club. To listeners, I'll catch you on Tuesday to discuss Beloved by Toni Morrison and go get your copy of All Girls by Emily Layden today. Thanks so much for having me. All right.